You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ. Oh, hey. Oh, TJ. What? I'm tired. Yeah. (laughs) I will say, uh, I haven't gotten great sleep in like the last week because Cheddar, our pod mascot, has taken to sitting on my face or punching me in the face at like five in the morning he wants your pillow man i okay i used to it yeah so i'll like scoot down and i'll like try to you know like if you're laying on a desk you know how you like crush your arms and lay your face down yeah he'll work his paw in between my arms and start just like batting my face (laughs) (laughs) so they're getting locked out of the bedroom tonight so maybe i can actually get some sleep yeah good luck with that yeah how's your week in my experience they'll just bat at the door then they throw little sacrifices under. Or meow. <laughs> we wake up and there's like six mice that have been thrown under the door. <laughs> so, fake mice. Yeah. Fake, fake mice. mice. Fake mice. <laughs> How's your week? Oh, busy, man. Yeah, well. We've been having, well, we've been having some trouble with still getting over our, the loss of our pup. And so there's good days and there's bad days and I'm not sleeping so great myself. But we move on. Yep. You know. yeah. And so I I'm, I got to tell you, I'm really excited about who you're talking about today because you told me when we were at work that it was a lot of stuff that that you're leaving out the stuff that people already know. Yeah. So let me kind of explain this. So if you listen to the last episode, you already know who I'm talking about today. And I I am talking and I'm so excited. I am talking about the man in black himself. Mr. Johnny Cash. But this will be a two-part episode. And I found so much, so many great stories that I'm actually kind of doing this a little bit different this time around. Quite often we will use kind of their their catalog as the timeline to kind of help walk through it and and kind of baseline everything. But Johnny Cash is such a part of society and like the collective knowledge at this point of like you know his catalog you know some of the stories like the big stories but what I'm really excited about was that when I was doing my digging I kind of got to I got to see another side of him that really got me excited and drove my research so I'm hoping that you all enjoy this too if not I'm I'm sorry (laughs) I'm I'm really excited because uh, my brother might actually listen to this episode because he will quote, like, you'll say, hey, what do you want for breakfast? And he'll just look at you and he'll cut his eyes at you and, like, squint at you and just go, you know, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. <laughs> so is that is that two eggs or one? I don't, I can't tell what. I walk the line. Yeah, that's still, do you want grits? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start off by citing my sources at the top of this episode since it is a two-part and I want to make sure that everybody that I did, all the sources that I did go to get recognized. Obviously, I went to Wikipedia. We owe them a big donation at this point. That's my go-to all the time. just give them $3. Yeah. Then, of course, I used the Johnny Cash website bio, IMDB. There's a great little short video on YouTube called Eight Unforgettable Johnny Cash Moments. Uh, I hit a website called NME and got a little... Info there, rollingstone.com, an article called Johnny Cash Documentary Film to Chronicle Folsom Prison Concert, which I need to find that so badly. Uh, Netflix documentary. This was really great. Uh, I'll mention it more in episode two. I talk more about this, but great documentary. Uh, Netflix released a series called Remastered, and there's just a few episodes here and there. This one in particular was Tricky Dick and the Man in Black. And you pointed me in the direction of Remastered for Sam Cooke. Yeah. And I was actually like, oh, I'll just listen to this while I was at work. But it's so 
layered and well done. I'm like, no, I actually need to like pay attention to this because it's like an hour and 20 minutes long. Yeah, they're only about an hour, hour and a half, but they're really interesting and really well done. So I recommend those for any of our listeners anyways, because there's some really cool ones out there. And I'm sure we'll be coming back to that series again for some research later on. Big Country, there was an article, Johnny Cash's Grand Ole Opry debut. I hit a, (laughs) I did a lot of, a lot of sources this time. Uncut, which is a British website, had um, an interview with Chris Christopherson about Johnny Cash. So I did that. AXS.com, Johnny Cash's five most memorable performances. Rollingstone.com, again, for a flashback of when Hank Williams is fired from the Grand Ole Opry. And MusicRadar.com, Trent Reznor talks Johnny Cash. There's also some really great biographies out there, which I'll cite within where there was a quote when there was information pulled within where I got information from. Um, Unfortunately, again, time allowing did not allow me, which I'm really mad because I found one biography while I was doing my research that I wish I'd known about before I started it. But say la vie. And here we go. In case you've been living under a rock and have no idea who Johnny Cash is, Johnny Cash was an American singer, songwriter, guitarist, actor, and author. One of the best-selling music artists of all time, having sold more than 90 million records worldwide, which that's huge. There's not That list is very short of people yeah. that have accomplished that. Although primarily remembered as a country music icon, his genre-spanning songs and sound embraced rock and roll, rockabilly, blues, folk, and gospel. This is the story of Johnny Cash. He was born J.R. Cash in Kingsland, Arkansas, to his mother, Carrie Clovery, nay Rivers, and father, Ray Cash. He was the fourth of seven children. His youngest brother, Tommy, also became a successful artist down the line. You're also going to find I've found a few fun facts that are going to be peppered in a little more frequently through the episode, and we're going to start right now. Fun fact, Johnny Cash was primarily of English and Scottish descent. As an adult, he traced his surname to 11th century Fife after meeting with the then Laird of Falkland, Major Michael Crichton Stewart. <laughs> That's a <laughs> lot of names. Say that five times fast. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> Moving on. Cashlock and other locations in Fife bear the name of his family. So that's kind of cool. In March 1935, when Cash was just three years old, the family settled in Dias, Arkansas, a New Deal colony established to give poor families the opportunity to work land that they may later own. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, that's during the Dust Bowl era, isn't it? Yes. And that's like Arkansas's prime Dust Bowl land. (laughs) Kind of, yeah. Right? Yeah, kind of. So they just dealt them a winning hand. Yeah. Hey, but... They get their own fields, they get their own stuff, they get their own, you know, they might actually get to own land at some point. Black lung. <coughs> yeah. And actually in the documentary with Tricky Dick, there was a small clip, video clip with Johnny Cash where he drove past his old homestead and he said that like each property had, it's just a small house, maybe one room, small house, but there was a barn, there was chickens and land, so... He said they always have plenty of food. So, you know, that's helpful. From the age of five, Cash farmed 20 acres of cotton fields and other seasonal crops with his family, singing with them as they worked. The Cash farm in Dias experienced a flood. His family's economic and personal struggles during the Great Depression inspired many of his songs, especially those about other people facing similar difficulties. Consequently, Cash had sympathy for the poor and working class throughout his life. Side note, that flood would later inspire the song that Cash wrote called Five Feet High and Rising. It wiped out everything. Rough times. I mean, I get, like, it's so weird when you think about, like, the past. Because yeah. everything is, like, given to us now. And I'm not saying, like, handed to us. I'm saying, like, our food comes prepackaged. You know, it, it like we don't have to hunt. We have DoorDash, for goodness sakes. I mean, it just, it it's so weird to think like you'd have to wake up at five in the morning and if you wanted milk, there was the cow. If you wanted eggs, 
there were the chickens. Like, you had to work for your food. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're so far removed from that now that, like, it's 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 almost unfathomable. I mean, I can watch my food drive to me on Postmates. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I don't got to do nothing if I don't want to. If you asked me to milk a cow, I would... I would cry. I would give it my best shot. <laughs> I'd try. I wouldn't succeed, but I would try. <laughs> On Saturday, May 12th, 1944, Cash's older brother, Jack, with whom he was very close, was seriously injured in an accident at his, at his job in a high school. He was pulled into an unguarded table saw while cutting oak in a fence post and was almost cut in two. He died from his injuries a week later. Cash often spoke of the guilt he felt over this incident according to cash the autobiography his father was away that morning but johnny his mother and even jack himself all had premonitions or a sense of foreboding about that day his mother urged jack to skip work and go fishing with his brother but he insisted on working as the family needed the money on his deathbed jack said that he had visions of heaven and angels decades later cash spoke of looking forward to meeting his brother in heaven Reportedly after Jack died, Johnny's father, Ray, became very bitter toward Johnny. Ray had thought that Jack would become a preacher and be the one in the family to make it, and Johnny was a sensitive dreamer in a place where there was no room for dreams. He grew up never quite feeling like he was enough, and that was part of an interview from that Netflix documentary. So, Johnny's grandfather was a Southern Baptist, hellfire type of a preacher, and his family was dyed-in-the-wool conservatives. Cash's early memories were dominated by gospel music and radio. He was significantly influenced by traditional Irish music, which he heard performed weekly by Dennis Day on the Jack Benny radio program. Isn't that cool? Isn't that like river dance? <laughs> There's much more to Irish music than river dance, and I would urge you to find it because it's much <laughs> better than most of that stuff. So Lord of the Dance. No. <laughs> so... Cash was actually taught guitar by his mother and a childhood friend, and he began playing and writing songs at the age of 12, which, okay, so you know Johnny Cash's voice, that deep bass baritone voice that he has now? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's unmistakable. When he was really young, he actually had a high tenor voice. Interesting. So when he first started out writing these songs, he had this high, sweet tenor voice, and then all of a sudden it's... Hi, I'm, I'm Johnny, Johnny Cash. Cash. Like, <laughs> crazy puberty, y'all. <laughs> In high school, he would sing on the local radio station. There wasn't a lot on that, but again, I mean, this is standard. Everybody that we've done on this time ends up kind of on that same path. So again, trying to focus on more in-depth stuff later on. Cash remained in Dias Colony until his high school graduation in 1950, then set off for Detroit in search of work. He ended up in Pontiac, Michigan, where he took work at an automotive plant. However, his time there was short-lived. At birth, Cash was named J.R. Cash, but when he enlisted in the United States Air Force on July 7, 1950, thus the reason Pontiac was short-lived, he was not permitted to use his initials as a first name, so he changed it to John R. Cash. He attended basic training at Lackland Air Force Base and then technical training at Brooks Air Force Base, both located in San Antonio, Texas. On July of 1951, he met 17-year-old Vivian Liberto at a roller rink, and they dated for three weeks until he was assigned to the 12th Radio Squadron Mobile of the U.S. Air Force Security Service at Landsberg, Germany for a three-year tour. He worked as a Morse code operator intercepting Soviet Army transmissions. How cool is that? That's incredible. Also, while there at Landsberg, he created his first band, the Landsberg Barbarians, which I think that's a cool band name. Side note and fun fact. It was also during his service that he acquired that distinctive scar on the right side of his jaw. And that is actually the result of a surgery to remove a cyst. There's nothing that scares me more than thinking about surgery before, like, 1995. Right? <laughs> like, give me anything else. Just, no. <laughs> that would be why he has that scar. 
On July 3rd, 1954, he was honorably discharged as a staff sergeant and he returned to Texas. During his time in Germany, Cash and Vivian had exchanged hundreds of pages of love letters. Wouldn't that be so sweet? Love letters? No. Oh, I would love it. I hate mushy stuff. I don't like... Sorry if you like this stuff. It's just not my cup of tea, but I'm not like the poetry and flowers kind of girl. I'm like the, just give me a steak. <laughs> like, if you got bacon, I'm down. That's how you get to my heart, is by clogging it. I mean, I can be chilled. You can give me a whiskey and I'm good, but a little romance never hurting anybody. Nah, there's no need for that. My husband still opens up the doors to the car for me, though. Well, and I nice. think that's really sweet. That is nice. So Cash and Vivian had exchanged hundreds of pages of love letters. And on August 7th, 1954, they were married at St. Anne's Roman Catholic Church in San Antonio. The ceremony... So wait, he left? He left Germany like after he was discharged? And he came back to Texas? Yeah. He came back to Texas when he was discharged. And since they had been corresponding throughout his three-year tour, they got married. Excellent. Yeah. A little sweet love story. Uh, Too bad it goes downhill fast. Well, yeah. The ceremony was performed by her uncle, Vincent Liberto, and they would have four daughters during their marriage, Roseanne, Kathy, Cindy, and Tara. After they were married, Cash and Vivian moved to Memphis, Tennessee, where he sold appliances while studying to be a radio announcer. At night, he played with guitarist Luther Perkins and bassist Marshall Grant. Perkins and Grant were known as the Tennessee Two. Cash worked up the courage to visit Sun Records studio. Oh, man. Iconic. Oh, yeah. We're going to have a short set just about Sun Records. Oh, yeah. So watch for that in, in a couple months. Yeah. So Cash worked up the courage to visit the Sun Records studio, hoping to get a recording contract. He auditioned for Sam Phillips by singing mostly gospel songs, only to learn from the producer that he no longer recorded gospel music. Cash eventually... One over the producer, though, with new songs delivered in his early rockabilly style. In 1955, when signing with Sun Records, he started using the name Johnny Cash and made his first recordings, Hey Porter and Cry, 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 which were released in late June and met with success on the country hit parade. Now, we've talked about this before, and this is a moment that is huge for any country musician. Yeah, I stood on the circle. I know, don't ugh, make me <laughs> jealous. Kill me. On July 7th, 1956, Johnny had his dream come true and made his Grand Ole Opry debut. And to boot, he met the woman who would change his life. Cash's I Walk the Line released that same year, but had not yet reached its number one peak. And Opry manager Jim Denny kept Cash waiting for two hours before finally meeting with him. Two hours! Make the guy wait. It's crazy. But, I mean... I'd wait for I feel five. like I'd I feel wait. like that changes... That, 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 like, separates the wheat from the chaff. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're willing to sit there and patiently wait, that says a lot about somebody. I'd sit there all night, every night, for two decades if I had to. I get it. I mean, I've stood on the circle. Yeah. <laughs> Stop it. In recalling this moment, Cash says, He looked at my black clothes and long hair and sideburns and said, What makes you think you belong in the Grand Ole Opry? Cash recalled to author Robert K. Orman. So I said, Well, I've got a record in the top ten. I said, I think they'd like to hear me. Cash performed I Walk the Line, Get Rhythm, and So Doggone Lonesome at his Opry debut. The country legend played at the Opry often thereafter until he was briefly banned in 1965, which I'll get to that later. Another side note on this. So Chris Christofferson credits Johnny Cash with launching his career and met him backstage at one of his earlier Opry performances, like in the early 60s. By his accounts, Cash was, quote, prowling around like a panther. He was just the most exciting-looking person I'd ever seen. He continues, I figured that if, if I couldn't make it as a songwriter, then I could write about people like that, just hanging out in that atmosphere. Okay. 
One of my favorite stories involving Chris Christopherson and Johnny Cash is that Chris Christopherson stole a helicopter and flew it to Johnny Cash's house to give him a song. And yeah, to give him um to give him demo tapes. And Johnny wasn't home, so he was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think that's brilliant. <laughs> At his Debut, Cash had a chance encounter backstage with June Carter, who was already a member of the Grand Ole Opry as a member of the Carter family and was singing backup for Elvis Presley at the time. The two formed a close friendship and began touring together with the Carter family over the subsequent years. On December 4th, 1956, Elvis Presley dropped in on Philip while Carl Perkins was in the studio cutting new tracks with Jerry Lee Lewis backing him on piano. Cash was also in the studio and the four started an impromptu jam session. Phillips left the tapes running, and the recordings, almost half of which were gospel songs, survived. In Cash, the autobiography, Cash wrote that he was the farthest from the microphone and sang in a higher pitch to blend in with Elvis, and those recordings have since been released under the title Million Dollar Quartet. There are just some events that you wish you could be in the room for. Yeah, that would be one of them. That would be so cool. Definitely be one of them. I think my other one would be if the if I could be in the room when the traveling Woolburys wrote "Handle Me with Care." Yeah, that, that would, would be, be cool. That would be a, a big one. That would be cool. Cash's next record, Folsom Prison Blues, made the country top five. His "I Walk the Line" became number one on the country charts and entered the pop charts top twenty. So crossover. He's seeing crossover that early in his career, and that's huge for him. As his career was taking off, Cash started drinking heavily and became addicted to amphetamines and barbiturates. So, sad side of his career taking off. For a brief time, he shared an apartment in Nashville with Waylon Jennings, who was deeply addicted to amphetamines. Cash used the stimulants to stay awake during tours. Friends joked about his nervousness, quote, and erratic behavior, many ignoring the warning signs of his worsening drug addiction. The song Home of the Blues followed, Recorded in July 1957. In October that same year, Cash became the first Sun artist to release a long playing album. So not just a single, like a full LP. That album was called Johnny Cash with his hot and blue guitar. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Although he was Sun's most consistently selling and prolific artist at the time, Cash felt constrained by his contract with the small label. Phillips did not want Cash to record gospel, and he was paying him a 3% royalty rather than the standard rate of 5%. Presley had already left Sun, and Phillips was focusing most of his attention and promotion on Lewis. In 1958, Cash left Phillips to sign a lucrative offer with Columbia Records. His single, Don't Take Your Guns to Town, became one of his biggest hits, and he recorded a collection of gospel songs for the second album for Columbia. However... Cash left behind a sufficient backlog of recordings with Sun that Phillips continued to release new singles and albums from Sun Records, featuring previously unreleased material until as late as 1964. So eight, no, six years after he left Sun Records. Cash was in the unusual position of having new releases out on two labels concurrently. Sun's 1960 release, a cover of Oh Lonesome Me, made it to number 13 on the C&W charts, country western charts. <laughs> Side note, when RCA Victor signed Elvis Presley, it also bought Sun Records Masters, but when Cash departed for Columbia, Phillips retained the rights to the singer Sun Masters. So Columbia eventually licensed, licensed some of those recordings for release on compilations after Cash's death, but Sun Records still held them. In the early 1960s, Cash toured with the Carter family, which I kind of alluded to previously, which by this time regularly included Mother Mabel's daughters, Anita, June, and Helen. June later recalled admiring him from afar during these tours. He also acted in, wrote, and sang the opening theme for a 1961 film entitled Five Minutes to Live, which was later re-released as Door-to-Door Maniac. That seems to be like a trend. You know, we've talked about this before, especially with like Bobby Fuller and Roy Orbison, was they will get these record deals and then all of a sudden Hollywood comes a-calling and yep. and they're not that great. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, 
Johnny becomes one that tries to jump on that film and television train. I mean, he succeeds to an extent, but not as much as he would like, I think. In 1961, Johnny moved his family to a hilltop home overlooking Casita Springs, California, a small town south of Ojai on Highway 33. He had previously moved his parents to the area to run the small Johnny Cash trailer park. Johnny's drinking led to several run-ins with local law enforcement. And this kind of is happening. He's still touring. He's still doing all this stuff. And until 1963, we start seeing some bigger issues. Oh, before you say this, I'll just, for the listeners who don't know, from where we're sitting right now in North Hollywood, California, Ojai is almost an hour and a half away. So they're not, it's like past Ventura and like west of Palmdale. So it's it's pretty far from here. Yeah, more deserty. But he's just, he's touring, he's releasing stuff and all this. So now that brings us to 1963. Although he was in many ways spiraling out of control from his alcohol and drug use, Cash could still deliver hits due to his frenetic creativity. His rendition of Ring of Fire was a crossover hit, reaching number one on the country charts and entering the top 20 on the pop charts. So his alcohol abuse, his drug use, it's not really slowing him down. It's just people are noticing. You know what's interesting about Ring of Fire is uh, in the vastly underrated horror film Silent Hill, uh, which is honestly, it's a fantastic, like probably one of the best films based on a video game. Mm-hmm. It uses all the video game's music, like from the original video games. Right. They use actual pieces of music. And there's only one piece of music that's used in that film that is not from the video games. And that is Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so it's just like it's it's kind of buried in our our vernacular in, in, in pop culture. So, I mean, Ring of Fire was a massive hit. Well, it's still, I mean, it's still hugely popular. You still hear it all the time. I do anyways. So what's funny about this is that, so what's interesting about this song, though, is that it was originally performed by June's sister, but the signature mariachi-style horn arrangement was provided by Cash. He said that it had come to him in a dream. So side note about who who created the song, who knows. Vivian Liberto claimed a different version of the origins of Ring of Fire. In her book, I Walked the Line, My Life with Johnny, Liberto says that Cash gave Carter half the songwriting credit for monetary reasons. In 1964, coming off of the chart success of his previous album, I Walked the Line, he recorded the album Bitter Tears, Ballads of the American Indian a concept album devoted to spoken word and songs addressing the plight of Native Americans and mistreatment by the government. So this section was one of those that I decided to kind of discard a few of the more fluffy that we usually put in um, because this was really interesting. That He was a huge advocate for the Native Americans and it disturbed him, the treatment of them, in the past and present at that time um, quite a bit. And he had a huge respect. So it's kind of like Marlon Brando. Yeah. So he created this passion project and this concept album to kind of draw attention to that and to honor that. The album featured stories of a multitude of Native peoples, mostly of their violent oppression by white settlers. The Pima, represented by the Ballad of Ira Hayes. Navajo, represented by the song Navajo. Apache, Apache Tears. Lakota, Bigfoot. Seneca, represented, in case you haven't figured out, I'm listing the tribes with the songs that represented them. Continuing. Seneca, As Long As the Grass Shall Grow. And Cherokee, Talking Leaves. Cash wrote three of the songs himself and one with the help of Johnny Horton. But the majority of the protest songs were written by folk artist Peter Lafarge, son of activist and Pulitzer Prize winner Oliver Lafarge. Cash had met Lafarge in New York in the 1960s and admired him for his activism. The album single The Ballad of Ira Hayes, which is a song about Ira Hayes, one of the six to raise the U.S. flag at Iwo Jima, 
in case you hadn't guessed, he was a Native American, really was neglected when he came back and died of depression and alcoholism. Yeah, and side note, I actually, I say was in, I, I wasn't in, in, I was an extra in Flags of Our Fathers. And they bring up to stage like all the guys who raised the flag up at like this big rally. And I started talking to this guy and he was super nice. And I'm like, oh, what's your name? And he's like, what's, my name's Adam. And then he got called to sit and I didn't realize that this whole conversation that I've been having having with this guy, I was having a conversation with Adam Beach, who plays him in Flags of Our Fathers. Oh, nice. So years later, at least he got kind of some slice of recognition. Well, and I feel like Johnny Cash had a little bit to do with that and his work. I mean, I'm not saying that he single-handedly got this guy recognition, but probably didn't hurt. But not to go off on too much of a tangent... But it is almost the 4th of July. And so I feel like I can say this, but we should be taking care of our troops. We should be taking care Mm -hmm. of the people that take care of us. People that are willing to lay down their lives for us. Regardless of creed, color, nationality, whatever. Like, if they lay down their lives for us, we should take care of them. And it's honestly, in my opinion, and I'm going to end my rant there because then I'm going to start crying and getting upset. And Well, we have to get back to Johnny Cash, but it is appropriate to throw in here because that was a lot of what he stood for, too. Johnny ended up being a political man, but he didn't mean to be. He just felt for these people. So. I mean, who else would we pick? Kid Rock? I mean, we could. <laughs> he's, he's not dead yet. Fun fact. Johnny Cash actually sent Kid Rock a copy of his Americans 4 signed with the note thanking him for keeping the music, that type of music going. I didn't even realize that I was doing a tie-in joke. So yay me. Yeah. Back to Johnny Cash. Back to Johnny Cash and the ballad of Ira Hayes. The song was neglected by non-political radio at the time. And the record label denied it any promotion due to its provocative protesting and, quote, unappealing nature. Cash faced resistance and was even urged by an editor of a country music magazine to leave the Country Music Association. Quote, you and your crowd are just too intelligent to associate with plain country folks, country artists and country DJs. End quote. The album was boycotted and Cash was enraged. Rightly so. I'm getting chills saying this. I got goose pimples. In reaction to this boycott and the letter that he received, on August 22nd, 1964, the singer published a letter as a full-page advertisement in Billboard magazine calling the record industry cowardly. Quote, DJs, station managers, owners, where are your guts, he demands. I had to fight back when I realized... That so many stations are afraid of Ira Hayes. Just one question. Why? He concludes the letter saying, Ira Hayes is strong medicine. So is Rochester, Harlem, Birmingham, and Vietnam. Cash kept promoting the song himself and used his influence on radio disc jockeys he knew to eventually make the song climb to number three on the country charts while the album rose to number two on the album charts. So that right there, like, I have chills. Like, this, like, F right, Johnny. USA, USA, Johnny USA. Cash, Johnny Cash. <laughs> like, I'm just, ugh, I get, I get all riled up with him, and I, I just, I'm finding all of this story so inspirational. After hearing this, is there something greater than love? Because I loved him before. Now I more than love him now. There's got to be something higher than love. Hmm. I Jensen him now. (laughs) Oh, he does it a few times throughout this story. And it just makes me love him even more. Like, you know, we Jensen him. We're enamored of him. Is that no? We're gonna more? stick with Jensen. We're gonna stick with Jensen because Jensen is we more Jensen than him now. We, I Jensen you, Johnny Cash, because <laughs> Jensen is more than love. <laughs> We're determined to get him to <laughs> shout us out for all of the love that we send him on a weekly basis. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Jensen. While initially reaching charts 
This album continued to meet with resistance from some radio from some fans and radio stations, which rejected its controversial take on social issues. Basically, the album got boycotted and kind of banned in some places, and it was considered to be lost until the early 21st century. Uh, so this is just kind of a side note on this. In 2011, Antonio D'Ambrosio, not the pronunciation podcast, y'all, published the book A Heartland and a Guitar, Johnny Cash and the Making of Bitter Tears. Now, Leading- what, when, what year was this? In 2011. No, uh, like when the... Uh, uh- the album came out in 1964, but after all the backlash and everything, it pretty much just got buried. And and that's interesting because it would be an like almost a decade later when Marlon Brando would refuse his Oscar, and he would he he basically did it because of the treatment of the Native Americans. So it's really interesting because Johnny is kind of a trailblazer, bringing that message into the forefront. Yeah, like he ain't messing around. So yeah, essentially. The album is boycotted, it's banned in some places, and it's essentially buried. The album is considered, as a side note here, the album is considered lost until the early 21st century, leading to a re-recording of the songs by contemporary artists in the making of the documentary film, We're Still Here, Johnny Cash's Bittersweet Tears Revisited, which I did look it up. It is on Amazon. (laughs) You just didn't want to pay the $3.99 to rent it. No, it wasn't to rental. You have to actually buy the DVD. Ah. And it wouldn't get there in time. And I would probably only watch it maybe twice. The documentary tells the story of Cash's efforts with the controversial album while covering the struggles of Native Americans. This film was aired on PBS in February and November of 2016. And the DVD was... And the DVD was released in August 2018, if you would like to check it out. And it is on Amazon, available for purchase. I saw it. I just didn't really have time to buy it and watch it myself. So if you buy it and watch it and you like it, let me know. He followed up Bitter Tears with, parenthetical, Johnny Cash. Mm. Sings the ballads of the true West. An experimental double record mixing authentic frontier songs with Cash's spoken narration released in 1965. So is that going back to like old, like actual Old West songs? Like he's just taking, you know, like Rawhide? (laughs) It's like, I'm sorry that I went to Rawhide, but it's like literally the only Don't ask me that question. I don't know. It might be more of his, I think it's honestly more music geared around the American the Native Americans. He followed up Bitter Tears with Johnny Cash sings The Ballads of the True West, an experimental double record mixing authentic frontier songs with Cash's spoken narration, and that was released in 1965. And this is, again, more songs similar to Bitter Tears as, you know, along in the mix. Fun fact, you can actually find... Bitter Tears, 1964, on Spotify. Yes. Yeah, they pretty much unearthed that album at this point. So this begins... 1965 was a big year for Cash for a number of reasons. Johnny and June appeared on Pete Seeger's short-lived television series Rainbow Quest, on which Cash explained his start as an activist for the Native Americans, stating... In 57, I wrote a song called Old Apache Squaw and then forgot the so-called Indian protest for a while. But nobody else seemed to speak up with any volume of voice. Columbia, the label for which Cash was recording then, was opposed to putting the song on his next album, considering it, quote, too radical for the public. Cash singing songs of Indian tragedy and settler violence went radically against the mainstream of country music in the 1950s, which is dominated by the image of the righteous cowboy who simply makes the native soil his own. And again, Cash is very against this. And this is talking about um, that 1965 album, Sings the Ballads of the True West. They didn't want to add it onto that. Although Cash cultivated a romantic outlaw image, he never served a prison sentence. I'm... I was shocked when I found that out. Yeah. Because he does so much prison stuff. 
Well, like, and there is a reason for that, but it's not because he himself spent a lot of time there. Despite landing in jail several times for misdemeanors, he stayed only one night on each stay. So I know people who got DUIs that have stayed longer. <laughs> right. On May 11th, 1965, he was arrested in Starkville, Mississippi for trespassing late at night onto private property to pick flowers. And side side fun fact, he used this experience to write the song Starkville City Jail, which he discussed on his Live at San Quentin album. In 1965, and this is kind of a big one that a lot of people know about as well as a big, like, <gasps> moment. In June... 1965, Cash's camper caught fire during a fishing trip with his nephew, Damon Fielder, in Los Padres National Forest in California, triggering a forest fire that burned several hundred acres and nearly caused his death. Cheese and crackers. Yeah, this is no joke. Cash claimed that the fire was caused by sparks from a defective exhaust system on his camper. But his nephew, Fielder, thinks that Cash started a fire to stay warm and in his drugged condition, failed to notice the fire getting out of control. When the judge asked Cash why he did it, Cash said, I didn't do it. My truck did. And it's dead, so you can't question it. (laughs) But you gotta love Johnny Cash sometimes. The fire destroyed 508 acres, burning the foliage off of three mountains and driving off 49 of the refuge's 53 endangered California condors. Cash was unrepentant and claimed, I don't care about your damn yellow buzzards. The federal government sued Johnny Cash and was awarded $125,172. Cash eventually settled the case and paid $82,001, which is equivalent to $666,660.32 today. Someone used the inflation calculator. Yes, I did. (laughs) While on tour that same year, he was arrested October 4th in El Paso, Texas, by a narcotics squad. The officers suspected he was smuggling heroin from Mexico, but found instead 688 dexedrine capsules, which are amphetamines, and 475 equinil, which are sedatives or tranquilizers, that the singer had hidden inside his guitar case. Because the pills were prescription drugs rather than illegal narcotics, he received a suspended sentence. Cash posted a $1,500 bond and then was released until his arraignment. And that was one night before what is probably one of the most talked about moments in his career and arguably the lowest point in his battle with addiction. Cash was banned from the Grand Ole Opry after a performance on October 5th, 1965. Cash was stoned and drunk, and when things went array with the microphone stand, Cash lost his cool, took the mic stand, and smashed the Opry stage footlights out in front of a horrified audience. He later recalled, I don't know how bad they wanted me in the first place, but the night I broke all the lights on the stage with the microphone stand, they said they couldn't use me anymore. So I left and I used that as an excuse to really get wild and wound up in the hospital with my, th- with my third time I broke my nose. Side note, unlike Hank Williams, which this is still a sore spot for a lot of people, whom was similarly ousted due to erratic behavior linked to drugs and alcohol, and ultimately the final straw was when he failed to appear at a scheduled performance, Johnny Cash was allowed to return three years later to continue playing regularly and host his TV show. So after his... Well, let's face it. I'm going to call it a temper tantrum. Call a spade a spade. After his temper tantrum at the Grand Ole Opry got him banned, Liberto, remember he's still married to Vivian, but Liberto later said that she filed for divorce in 1966 because of Cash's severe drug and alcohol abuse, as well as constant touring, affairs with other women, and his close relationship with June Carter. Their four daughters were then raised by their mother. How old are they at this point? Like like the oldest daughter, roughly. Oh, I'm just wondering based on oh, like I have if no they're idea. if they're living with their mom still, like if they're under the age of eighteen. I'm just curious, you know. Well, like... Liberto and Cash were only married for thirteen years. Okay. So So the oldest kid is still either thirteen or under. Got it. Yeah. Okay. In nineteen sixty six, in response to his activism throughout the late fifties and early sixties, the singer was adopted by the Seneca Nation's Turtle Clan, which I thought was really cool. 
Reaching a low with his severe drug addiction and destructive behavior, Cash was divorced from his first wife and had performances canceled, but he continued to find success. In 1967, Cash's duet with June Carter Jackson won a Grammy Award. I love that song. Who doesn't? It's got one of my favorite lines, which is, I'll be dancing on a pony keg. I love that (laughs) line. I love that line so much. Cash was last arrested in 1967 in Walker County, Georgia, after police found he was carrying a bag of prescription pills and was in a car accident. Which now they probably like, if his name was on the bottle, they wouldn't have cared now. Depends on how many there were. The previous one was something like thousand pills. Yeah, that's a lot. Cash attempted, and here's the other, here's the, here's the other side of that. Cash attempted to bribe a local deputy who turned the money down. The singer was jailed for the night in Lafayette, Georgia. Sheriff Ralph Jones released him after giving him a long talk, warning him about the danger of his behavior and wasted potential. Cash credited that experience with helping him turn around and save his life. He later returned to Lafayette to play a benefit concert that attracted 12,000 people. The city population, by the way, was less than 9,000 at the time. Oh, wow. <laughs> and raised $75,000 for the high school. What? They should have renamed that to Johnny Cash High. They may have. Who knows? There is an unconfirmed story that in early 1967, Cash had a spiritual epiphany in the Nickajack cave. The story says that Cash had attempted to commit suicide while under the heavy influence of drugs. He descended deep into the cave, trying to lose himself and, quote, just die, but passed out on the floor. Utterly discouraged, he felt God's presence in his heart and struggled out of the cave despite exhaustion, by following a faint light and slight breeze. To him, the incident represented his rebirth. Reflecting on his on this particular part of his past, in a 1997 interview, Cash noted, I was taking the pills for a while, and then the pills started taking me. After his divorce from Liberto, Cash and Carter began a romance that would save his life, and she insisted that he overcome his addictions if he wanted to marry her. June Maybell and Ezra Carter moved into Cash's mansion for a month to help him get off drugs. As noted earlier, Cash had met the singer June Carter of the famed Carter family while on tour, and the two became infatuated with each other. In 1968, 13 years after they first met backstage at the Grand Old Opry, Cash proposed to June on stage during a live performance at the London Gardens in London, Ontario. Canada, not UK. The couple married a week later on March 1st, 1968, in Franklin, Kentucky. So they got their save-the-dates and invitations on the same day. Yeah, basically. (laughs) According to Marshall Grant, though, Cash did not completely stop using amphetamines in 1968. He did not end all drug use until 1970, when Grant claims the birth of Cash's son, John Carter Cash, on March 3rd inspired him to end his dependence. Any reason is a good reason to end addiction but a child is one of the best oh yeah continuing his activism for the native american people cash performed benefit concerts at the rosebud reservation close to the historical landmark of the massacre at wounded knee to raise money to help build a school so i mentioned about this netflix documentary this remastered tricky dick and the man in black and even though most of it is about his White House performance, which I'll talk about in the next episode, they did touch a little bit on this. And there was some great information from his son, John Carter Cash, that I wanted to share. John Carter Cash noted about his father in the documentary. He knew what it was like to feel lost. And so he could connect with other people's suffering. He sang for those who needed something to believe in and needed to be lifted up. Cash began performing concerts at prison starting in the late 1950s. But in January of 1968, Johnny Cash went to Folsom Prison, which led to one of the most iconic live albums of his career. He had brought recording equipment with him because he wanted people to hear how raw it was to play for these men. At Folsom Prison was released in 1968 and At San Quentin followed in 1969. Both live albums reached number one on Billboard Country Album Music Charts, and the latter crossed over to reach the top of the Billboard Pop Album Chart. So San Quentin crossed over. In 1969, Cash became an international hit when he eclipsed even the Beatles by selling 6.5 million albums. And that is so rarely done. 
like only a few artists have like oh yeah eclipsed him yeah so i mean that's it's hard to do and in comparison the prison concerts were much more successful than even his own later albums his own than even his own later live albums such as Strawberry Cake, which was recorded in London, and Live at Madison Square Garden, which peaked at numbers 33 and 39 on the album charts. Probably because it was touching people on a visceral level. There there are things that are... I know this is going to sound weird, metaphysical or whatever, but there are things that are imprinted in this music that you can feel. Like if you go back and you listen to Nine Inch Nails, The Downward Spiral, there's something that you can't quite put your finger on that makes it almost uncomfortable and visceral. And I found out, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more uh, in a, a month or so, Nine Inch Nails recorded Downward Spiral in the house that Sharon Tate was murdered in. Well, that's crazy. And Trent Reznor actually took the door that had <laughs> the word pig written on it. I don't know if it was still written on it, but he took the door. But there are things atmospherically that affect the sound and the feel but recording something within those prison walls you have to think that at some point some emotion some feeling some kind of atmospheric energy gets put into this music and that affects people in certain ways the Folsom prison record was introduced by a rendition of his Folsom prison blues which had become popular well before this while the San Quentin record included the crossover single a boy named sue which super fun fact i got really excited when i saw this a boy named sue was actually written by shell silverstein what yes (laughs) and i love this song so much and it makes so much sense that shell silverstein wrote it like where the sidewalk ends the giving tree yeah i had no idea but he penned that novelty song Wow. And it reached number one on the country charts and number two on the U.S. top ten pop charts. The AM versions of A Boy Named Sue contained profanities, which were edited out of the normal radio versions. And then side note number two, the modern CD versions of Folsom Prison and San Quentin are unedited, thus making them longer than on the original vinyl albums and they retain the audience reaction overdubs of the originals. In case you hadn't noticed, because I keep jumping around a little bit, all of his advocacy with the Native Americans is kind of happening around this same time. So we do jump back a little bit um, back and forth because it's all happening around this same time period which throughout is, the late 60s and early 70s. Which is interesting because it seems like he's giving a voice to the voiceless it's like he's working with prisoners and he's working with the native americans and and those were two kind of you know almost shunned groups of people at that time it was a very big deal for him he very much believed in helping out your fellow man that makes me just jensen him even more yeah so to that end Johnny Cash used his stardom and economic status to bring awareness to the issues surrounding the Native American people. Cash sang songs about indigenous humanity in an effort to confront the U.S. government. Many non-Native Americans stayed away from singing about these things because, as, as I mentioned with Bitter Tears, I mean, it could be career suicide. In 1970, Cash recorded a reading of John G. Burnett's 1890 80th birthday essay on Cherokee removal for the Historical Landmarks Association in Nashville. So that brings us to this is kind of where I start where the bouncing starts a little bit because now we're at the end of the 60s like 69 68 69 70 and starting into the 70s and all of this kind of starts in order to make any sort of flow I kind of have to to jump a little bit for things to make sense together. But this is where we're starting to see more more overlap. From June of 1969 to March of 1970, so Johnny Cash has been invited back. The ban has been lifted from the Opry. Cash starred in his own television show, The Johnny Cash Show on ABC. Produced by Scream Gems, the show is performed at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. 
The Statler brothers opened up for him in every episode. The Carter family and rockabilly legend Carl Perkins were, were also part of the regular show Entourage. Cash enjoyed booking mainstream performers as guests, but not just country artists. While this list does include Linda Ronstadt's first TV appearance, those performers also included Neil Young, Louis Armstrong, Neil Diamond, Kenny Rogers on the first edition, who appeared four different times, by the way, James Taylor, Ray Charles, Roger Miller, Roy Orbison, Derek and the Dominoes, Joni Mitchell, and Bob Dylan. You know that none of those people have been in my kitchen? I would believe that. During the same time period, he contributed the title song and other songs to the film Little Faust and Big Halsey, which starred Robert Redford, Michael J. Pollard, and Lauren Hutton. The title song, The Ballad of Little Faust and Big Halsey, written by Carl Perkins, was nominated for a Golden Globe Award in 1971. Jumping back a little bit, among these amazing, talented artists, Johnny Cash also invited Pete Seeger, which became incredibly controversial the network didn't want him to be on there he was afraid of what they were gonna of alienating the audience afraid of what they were gonna sing but also part of this documentary this netflix documentary they had a clip of him talking with pete Seeger and saying like no i'm not gonna do that like i'm i'm gonna bring you in so and he did (laughs) very controversial at the time so johnny cash's pick of bob dylan being on the show was kind of a head scratcher for some people but here's kind of a little bit behind that was that cash had actually met with dylan in the mid-1960s and became closer friends when they were neighbors in the late 60s in woodstock new york cash was enthusiastic about reintroducing the reclusive dylan to cash's audience and he and dylan had sang a duet girl from the north country on dylan's country album nashville skyline and Cash also wrote the album's Grammy-winning liner notes. So they had Wait, a closer connection than most people realized. You can win a Grammy for the liner notes? Apparently. we got to start writing liner notes or something. Another artist who received a major career boost from the Johnny Cash show, which we mentioned him already previously, was Chris Christopherson, who was just beginning to make a name for himself as a singer-songwriter. So I'm assuming this was probably after the helicopter incident. Still one of my favorite stories. Oh, yeah. It's a great story, but it was probably after that. During a live performance by Cash of Christofferson's Sunday Morning Coming Down, Cash refused to change the lyrics to suit network executives singing the song with its references to marijuana intact. The line goes, on a Sunday morning sidewalk, I'm wishing, Lord, that I was stoned. I'm clutching my pearls right now. Shock that Johnny said no to something. What? He mentioned marijuana? That's the devil's cigarette. I'm saying. So the suggested lyric change from the network was wishing Lord that I was home. Not only did Cash refuse to change the lyric, he even went so far as to verbally stress the word stoned while singing it. How Jim Morrison of him. And from the... From kind of the um, the recollection of it, like Johnny even looked directly at Christofferson in the audience when he sang it of like, no, <laughs> I'm singing it he as you wrote it. He's such a boss. It. I love him. He's so B.A. I love him so much. The song later went on to win Song of the Year at the CMAs and cemented the beginning of Christofferson's career. It just wouldn't be the same without like, just leave lyrics alone, people. So then... You know, again, going back to his activism, he would also use his show to continue telling stories of Native American plight, both in song and through short films such as The History of the Trail of Tears. A troubled but devout Christian, Cash has been characterized as a, quote, lens through which to view American contradictions and challenges, and his journey included rediscovery of his Christian faith he had been raised in. In 1971, he took an altar call in Evangel Temple, a small church in the Nashville area, pastored by Reverend Jimmy Rogers Snow, son of country music legend Hank Snow. The closing program of the Johnny Cash Show was a gospel music special. Guests included the Blackwood Brothers, Mahalia Jackson, Stuart Hamblin, and Billy Graham. And this is where we leave you until next week, where we will discuss... The second part of Johnny's life and career, including 
the White House show and the Hurt cover and his song, The Man in Black, and more on um, the second half of his life. I think it's actually not only just a middle point in the show, but also in his life and times. And Tracy doesn't know this yet, but I'll also regale you with the tale of the time that I actually sat down for like five minutes and talked to Trent Reznor about that. (laughs) She's always got to one-up me. I've had a weird life. So yeah, like Tracy said, check out part two of Johnny Cash next week. So if you would like to support the show, uh, any support helps. You can do that at patreon.com backslash rockandrollheaven. You can find us on Twitter at Rock and Roll LT. You can reach us on Facebook at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. You can check out our Instagram at Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Still not saying the website. And you can email us at Rock and Roll Heaven LT at gmail.com. And I just wanted to give a shout out to one of our newest listeners, Kathy Long, for reaching out to us on our Facebook page. Hi, Kathy. Don't worry. The episode on Def Leppard will be coming up in the next couple of months. So. Hold tight for that. I hope y'all enjoyed the first. I can't stop saying y'all now. Like if we unleash my Southern, <laughs> my inner Southern. But I hope you guys have been have enjoyed this first half of the episode. I know, like I say, I tried to kind of touch more on some of the things that maybe you don't know instead of reiterating what you already do know. So I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. So check us out next week, guys, for some more fun stories on Johnny Cash. And other than that, keep rocking in the free world. TJ. Yeah. Good night. Good night. And I would never name my son Sue. But you know the song, right? Of course I know the song. I would just never name my child Sue. I've just never liked. My name is Sue. How do you do? And on that note, good night. Bye. Bye. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends out for the tie that binds Because you're mine, I walk the line I find it very, very easy to be true I find myself alone when each day's through Yes, I'll admit that I'm a fool for you Because you're mine I walk the line As sure as night is dark and day is light I keep you on my mind both day and night And happiness I've known proves that it's right Because you're mine, I walk the line You've got a way to keep me on your side You give me cause for love that I can't hide For you I know I'd even try to turn the tide Because you're mine I walk the line I keep a close watch on this heart of mine I keep my eyes wide open all the time I keep the ends out for the tie that binds Because you're mine I walk the line
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.